Welcome to Grace Community Church this morning. Wasn't our worship beautiful this morning? That was Emily and Anne, mother and daughter. Emily is our new worship leader. So yes, we're excited. She's, she's starting to work with our worship teams and, and, and the, the, your familiar faces will all be back up here next week or some of them will. They're going to alternate out, but we're excited about the future of our worship team. Um, Pastor Dennis was here in first service. Uh, he has gone to a birthday party now for one of his granddaughters. But I just want you all to know that he really appreciates all your prayers last week. Um, he, while he was preaching last week, was feeling pretty rough. He ended up sitting down most of the second service um, and ended up going to the emergency room after church uh, to Fort Sanders. And um, they, they were worried about his heart, but they did a lot of tests on his heart. His heart was good. He was severely dehydrated, and he's doing much better today. So we're, we're grateful for your prayers, and, and without them, who knows? So thank you so much. Um, but we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been studying the book of Acts, and I'm going to pick up where Pastor Dennis left off last week. But as I was preparing this message this week, I was reminded of something that Calvin Wyatt said to me many, many years ago. And I know a lot of you remember Calvin. Um, he was, he was a, a great Christian man. He was an elder of our church, and he was a, a great inspiration and a great encouragement to me in my early years of ministry. But when I uh, was first starting out in youth ministry, I was very discouraged and you know, had those thoughts of, you know, I'm not reaching anybody, like they're just not getting it, you know, and I was frustrated. And he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can't count the number of apples in a seed. And so what he was saying to me was that I could share my faith. I could plant that seed of faith into one person. And they could share that faith with someone else, and they could share it with someone else and someone else. And I, and I would never know how many people that had actually been reached because of the seed that I planted in one person. Because it's like a ripple effect. If you think about it, somebody shared the gospel with Billy Graham, you know? And then he shared the gospel with countless others, and they shared with countless others, and countless others, and on and on. It's like this huge, huge ripple effect. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is there a ripple effect that took place in Judea and Antioch in the early church. And how, you know, if you think about it, the disciples, they shared the gospel. They shared the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of that. They shared that with some people who shared it with some people who shared it with some people. All the way down to you and me. You know, so it's amazing if you think about it. And so uh, I want to show you a video that just really emphasizes this point, And then I'll pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 11. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it, though he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet, oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, 
who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James. He was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. Isn't that a neat story? And it's, it's not just a story. I mean, it can happen in our lives too. We can impact people and reach people that we, we don't ever even know, we don't ever, ever even know about. Um, I think that's motivating to me to want to start the ripple effect in someone. So let's pick up where this ripple effect began in Acts chapter 11. Verse 1, it says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now this may seem, you know, not, like not a big deal to us, but 2,000 years ago this was huge. This was a really big deal. It had been prophesied in Isaiah that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, but up to this point it hadn't happened yet. So this is world changing. It's, it's a really big deal. In verse 2 it says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So they're ticked. They're ticked because Peter ate with uncircumcised men. This is a big deal. Let me tell you why. Because remember that Gentiles were considered unclean. And they even often referred to them as dogs. So they didn't like the Gentiles. And in Middle Eastern culture, eating a meal with someone was an intimate act. It still is. 
It's, it's a very relational, intimate act. And, you know, I think that when we read this verse, we think about our own culture and we think about how we eat. Uh, and we, you know, we have our own plate and we have our own fork and they've all been pressure washed in this, you know, high heat, high pressure dishwasher. But that, that wasn't the way it was here. You know, and, and if we eat, if we go to eat somewhere and there's dip or something like that, then we may take a spoon and dip out a portion onto our plate. Uh, or we may, you know, take our, our chip and dip it in one time, right? <laughs> just once. <laughs> no double dipping. That's just gross. But there, it's completely different. You go in to eat, and they may have the bread and the hummus out on the table, and you know, you would, you would get the bread and you would tear off what you wanted and then you would pass it to the next person. And then you would take your bread and you would dip it in the hummus and take a bite and dip again and take a bite because double dipping rules do not apply here, all right? So you could double dip all day long. And the, the saliva from your mouth is on your bread and it's from his mouth is on his bread and it's all in it. And that's okay because that's just saying that you're like family. And that, that you're in this close relationship with each other. And, you know, I can relate to this a little bit because, you know, if me and Roger and Rio and Brianna, we go out to eat and one of them takes a bite off a hamburger and they hand it to me and they want me to take a bite, I'll take a bite, you know. That's my family. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Now, I'm not going to take a bite off of yours, shorty. I'm not going to take a bite off of yours. Uh, <laughs> No offense, but Shorty used to get me in a headlock on Sunday mornings and try to make me take a bite of his half-eaten donut. Not happening. He tried to get me to this morning. It's, it's not happening. Love you, but we're not that close. But, <laughs> but for them, you know, that was just the way it was. And this signified that you were in a close relationship with each other and that you were like family. And so... For the, for the Jews, you know, they're looking at Peter. First of all, he went into the Gentiles' house. So that was bad enough because they're unclean and, and they're dogs. And he went into their house. And then he shared a meal with them. You know, he, he was double dipping with the Gentiles. And they're like, no, Peter, you're supposed, to be, you're supposed to be a leader of the church. What are you doing? And so here's Peter. He's had this great big vision from God. Okay, he's been told that the gospel can go to the Gentiles. And he has shared the gospel with Gentiles, and he has seen the Holy Spirit come on them. He has seen them get baptized, and he's excited. He's excited, and, you know, he's on this big spiritual high. You know, the Bible tells us that in Luke 15, that when, when non-believers get saved, that heaven rejoices. You know, and I can imagine that Peter is rejoicing. But it, it's not always that way here on earth we don't always rejoice and that's a shame because these are people that have gone from hell to heaven you know they've gone from death to life their eternity is now secure and we should be rejoicing in that but instead we criticize instead we criticize we hear that somebody got saved and we're like oh, I can't believe he got saved yeah I'll believe that when I see it you know when we just start criticizing because, because the devil hates it. The devil hates it when people come to Jesus. And so he's, he's going to use us to discourage them. He's going to put in that opposition because there's a battle going on. And it's not just when people get saved. You know, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you gave your life to the Lord many years ago, but you decide today you're motivated and inspired and you decide that you're going to go out there and you're going to live your life more boldly for Christ, 
and you're going to let Jesus' light shine more through you, then you're going to come up against opposition because the devil don't like it. He don't like it. And he's going to do something to interrupt that. But I always say take it as a compliment. Take it as a compliment. If the devil leaves you alone, then he don't see you as a threat. When he starts to see you as a threat, he's going to start messing with you. But it's just like if you decide that you're going to be a better witness at work, you're going to come up against opposition. And that's what we see here. That's what we see happening in the church. The Gentiles are getting saved, and there's criticism. So starting in verse 4, Peter's going to, he's going to recount everything that Pastor Dennis went over with you last week, which is very intimidating to me when I was, found out I was doing Acts chapter 11, and Pastor Dennis is doing Acts chapter 10, and this is, 11 is like a repeat of 10, so I'm going to just do the same thing over that Pastor Dennis did last week, and, you know, he's the lead pastor. So, anyway, it's a little nerve-wracking, but <laughs> I came to understand that when a story is told and then retold back-to-back in the Bible, it's because it's a really, really important story. It's because it's really important. This is a world-changing event that the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles. Not that the Gentiles couldn't have been saved before, but this is more of a door open, come on in, welcome home kind of thing. Because the Gentiles could have been saved before, but they were told that they first had to become Jewish. So that meant that they had to follow all the Jewish laws and customs first, and then they could follow Jesus. So if you were a man, that meant that you had to be circumcised. As a grown man... Without anesthesia, in a tent, by a guy named Bubba, who, had, who hadn't been to medical school. <laughs> and I'm just saying that if I was a man, Christianity might lose its appeal to me at that moment. But, but here's the thing. Peter ate with the Gentiles. The Jews are ticked off about it. They've confronted him. But he doesn't get defensive. He just tells his story. And it starts in verse 4. This is what I like to refer to as the pigs in a blanket story. Starting in verse 4, it says, Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. So three times. Some of us are slow learners. Aren't we glad that God is so persistent? But this story, this vision, it has a little to do with food, but it has a lot to do with people. Okay, because like I said before, the Gentiles were considered unclean. And God is telling Peter that he has declared the Gentiles as clean. In verse 11 it says, Right then three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. Right then. Okay, he has the vision and right then the guys are at the door. Which tells me that they headed that way. They headed his way before he even started having the vision. You know? So that's how God has, he's so intricate with all these details and he's working everything together. And he's doing that in our lives too. Okay, the, you, you have no idea the blessings that he has that are all headed your way. 
because he's in control and he's working it all together. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me. So there's witnesses. It's not just Peter's story now. And we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on, me, on us at the beginning. So the same thing that happened to us happened to them. And God is moving in our lives and God is moving in their lives. Verse 16, Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? So who am I to fight this? So I think that we do this a lot as Christians. You know, we fight against God. We know what God wants us to do. We know what God would have us to do, but we just don't want to do it. You know, we know that that relationship is bad for us. We know that that friend is leading us in the wrong direction and that we should end that friendship. But we just don't want to. You know, there are, are very few times, really, that we don't know what to do, that we don't know the right choice. Because he gives us this Bible. He gives us this Bible as a roadmap of right and wrong. And so if we use that, we can, we can figure out what's right and wrong. The problem is... If we're honest, we just don't want to do it. And so the, the follow-through is what's hard. So therefore we fight against God. But in verse 17, Peter says, who am I to fight against God? If this is what he's doing, then this is what we're doing. And in verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So after hearing Peter's story, then they believed. Because so many times that's all they need, is they need to hear your story. Because someone who doesn't believe in God, this Bible is just a fairy tale. It's just a storybook about people that they, they don't know and they aren't even sure existed. But now you, they know. You, they know, so your story can make an impact on them. You know, they can... They can contest history and argue Bible points all day long, but your story, they can't question that because they know you. They see these things happening in your life. So the Bible says to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have because your story can lead people to his story. Verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So I think we have a map to put up here so that you can see where Antioch is. If you look, you can see um, Asia, you see Mesopotamia, and Antioch is right there in that corner. And then down from it is Jerusalem. Uh, Antioch is the capital of Syria. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, we have Rome was first, and then Alexandria and Egypt was second. And Antioch is third. There's over half a million people that live in Antioch at this time. 
is, is huge. It was a commercial center. The uh, wealth from the east flowed through Antioch as it went to Rome. Uh, the, the main street in Antioch was four miles long, and it was paved with marble. Four miles paved with marble, with marble colonnades lining the streets. It was the only, the only city in the, Rome, in the ancient world that had its streets lit at night. It was, it was huge. It was a busy port. It was an epicenter for luxury and culture. It's an incredibly, incredibly important city. You had Romans, Greeks, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, all living here in this city. And they worshipped many different deities. They worshipped many different gods. Uh, it, was, it was a place of incredible uh, immorality, promiscuity. It was sin city. You know, Vegas had nothing on this place. It was sin city, very immoral and now you have showing up in this city, you have these Jewish Christ followers because they've been forced out of Jerusalem. And why were they forced out of Jerusalem? Because of the persecution of Christians, because of the killing of Stephen and the persecution of Christians that Saul was largely responsible for. They got the heck out of Dodge and they headed to Antioch. And the gospel was spread any fur even further because that's what God does. You know, sometimes he allows difficult things into your life, trials and tribulations, to, to force you out of your comfort zone. He scatters you. So it should be no surprise. Jesus wanted them to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the problem was that they were kind of comfortable there in Jerusalem. And so they're persecuted and they're pretty much forced out to move out, and they represent Christ in other areas to other people. They're scattered like seeds, and they represent them to people that they would have not come in contact otherwise. So what does this look like today? Maybe you have a great job, and you love your job, and you love the people that you work with, and, and you, know, you confide in each other, and you help each other, and maybe you even pray together, maybe you go to church together, and then you get the call that your job is being moved. You're going to a different location, or maybe you're going to a different shift, or you know, maybe you work in a factory and you're getting moved to a different line. God has just scattered you. He's just scattered you. Maybe he's moving you to a dark place so that you can be the light. You know, It's like the, the American shoe salesman that went to Australia to sell shoes to the Aborigines, and he gets there and he calls back to headquarters and he's like, they don't wear shoes here. I, I can't sell any shoes. They don't wear shoes here. And so he came back and they sent another salesman. And he calls back to headquarters and he said, they don't wear shoes here. Send more shoes. The opportunities are endless. So it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective because I guarantee if you look around you, you'll see that the opportunities are endless. Or maybe you have a health issue going on, and all of a sudden you're spending a lot of time in doctor's offices, and you're, you're sitting in waiting rooms. God has scattered you. He's put you in contact with people that you wouldn't normally be in contact with. He's given you the opportunity to be a witness to people that you otherwise would have never known. But notice in that verse it says, they spread the word only among the Jews. So what does that mean? It means that they only talked to people that they had something in common with. 
that they already gravitated towards people who had similar beliefs. Because the Jews, they believed in our God. They believed in our creator God. The only difference was they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah or they hadn't been told about Jesus as the Messiah. But other than that, they already had the foundation of the belief in God. So these were the people that they gravitated to. The Jesus followers gravitated to these people because they already had that belief in common. But in verse 20, it says, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So the believers were scattered, and therefore the gospel was scattered. And then look what happens in verse 21. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now what really impacts me here is that we don't know these guys' names. It doesn't even give their names. They're just, they're just a group of ordinary men on fire for God. And they go out and a great number of people, people are coming to God in groves, coming to Jesus in groves through these ordinary men. So I want to tell you today that you are ordinary. <laughs> okay? And that's a good thing. I am too. And the gospel should be spreading through us. Through ordinary people. You don't have to be Billy Graham or Stephen Furtick or, or Clayton King or Rick Warren to reach people for the gospel. It's on us, ordinary people in an ordinary world, reaching other ordinary people. It's on us to get this thing done. We have to impact eternity. And we've got to be ready for that. But we try to stay in the same groups and with the same cliques. And, and sometimes God is saying, yeah, you know, I, I want you to branch out a little bit. If you allow it to happen, just watch and see what the Lord will do. How he'll reach people in your everyday life. As many of you know, Roger and I, our family, we're in a, a transition period. We're getting our house ready to sell and we're going to build on our land um, but right now we're building a garage to move our stuff into and to probably live in for a while. But a couple of weeks ago, the, the block layers were there. And we went up there to take them some sandwiches. And I don't know these guys at all. I, I didn't hire them. The contractor hired them. I don't know them at all. But they're up there laying block. And I'm talking to one of the men. And I was telling him how much it costs to get a water meter put in, which is shocking if you've never done that. But very expensive. But... Um, and he was telling me how this man at his church, how he got a water meter put in on the other side of the county and how much it cost. Now, we weren't talking about church, and we didn't talk about church after that. But he took the opportunity to just kind of slip that into the conversation, you know? I mean, he didn't have to tell me that that was a man in his church. He could have just said a friend, but he didn't. He said a man in my church. And so what that told me was, number one, he's a Christian, and that he goes to church. And number two, if I wasn't, if I didn't go to church, because he didn't know anything about me, if I didn't go to church and I wanted to, or if I wanted to know something about God, well, here was me a connection, right? So he didn't shove Jesus down my throat. But he just kind of opened a door. And I think that that's all it takes is just open some doors. And you'll be surprised how many people walk through those doors. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
So they hear this stuff's going on, and they're like, hey, Barnabas, go, to, go down there and check this out. Do y'all remember who Barnabas is? He's, he's the guy that was in Acts chapter 4 that, uh, you know, he, he sold his land in Cyprus, which Cyprus is right, that little island right down below Antioch. He sold his land there, and he gave all the money to the church. And that sparked the whole Ananias, or, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira fiasco. But remember, Barnabas, it wasn't even his real name. His real name was Joseph, but Barnabas was his nickname given to him by his friends, and it meant son of encouragement. So he was the perfect guy to send to Antioch to encourage the work of the gospel and the believers there. And now let me just add here, too, that Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. 300 miles, and there's no planes, trains, or automobiles. So he is most likely walking 300 miles. I, you know, we're hiking today at Stonehenge. If anybody wants to go hike with us today at 2 o'clock, we'd love for you to join us. But that's three miles. You know, that's enough for me. Three miles is good. But Barnabas, he's like, 300 miles? That's what you want me to do, God? All right, here we go. And he just starts out. Verse 23 says, When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So he saw what the grace of God had done. What had the grace of God done and what does that look like? Well, grace means unmerited favor. But how do you see that? How do you see that? What does it look like? Well, Barnabas, when he arrived in Antioch, he didn't arrive to, to you know, a bunch of churchgoers who'd been Christians for years. You know, he arrived to meet a bunch of pagans who had just surrendered their life to Christ. But prior to this, they had been worshiping idols. They had been you know, participating in all kinds of immoral, sinful things. Uh, and now he sees them They've given their lives to, to Christ, and he sees them, and they're happy, and they're being kind to each other. Their lives are visibly changed. They're united together. They're helping each other. They're walking in forgiveness and mercy, and he visibly sees this in them. And, you know, God could have condemned them. He could have condemned them, but he didn't. He was gracious to them, and Barnabas, Barnabas can see that. And he was happy for them, and he encouraged them. We all need someone like that in our life, don't we? We all need a Barnabas in our life that will encourage us and lift us up when we screw up like we all do. Somebody to say, okay, Teresa, you messed up. Now get up and try again. You know, you're not a bad person. God still loves you. You can do this. We all need that, and we, all, we can all be that in someone else's life. We can all be that for someone else. Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I think that's an incredible description. If, if anybody could describe you in one sentence, I mean, that would be a great sentence, right? I want to be described like that. That's how I'd like to go down in the history books. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. I think Barnabas was gifted 
with encouragement, and Saul was gifted with teaching. And Barnabas, Barnabas was like, we need Saul, because people were coming to Christ in groves, and they needed to be taught. They needed a strong teacher, and that was Saul. But now let me just point this out, because I didn't realize this until I was studying for this, and my, my Bible has a timeline in it. And <clears throat> it had been eight years since Saul's conversion. It had been eight years, and he was in Tarsus, teaching the gospel for those eight years. And I think that the reason for that that is maybe two reasons. One, God was protecting him because I would say that the people in Jerusalem just didn't really like him. You know, it's not as easy for them to forgive as it was for God, you know. And, and I think that we can relate to that. If, if somebody came in here and started pulling out our, our Christian friends and family and killing them because they were Christians... And then a little while later, they wanted to come in here and sit with us in service and lead a small group. Not happening, right? I think we'd still be a little bit bitter. And so I think God was protecting him. And number two, I think that God was preparing him. He was preparing him to be a great teacher, to be very knowledgeable. And it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So this is a time much like today when people were identified by their people groups. You know, just like today, we have the blacks, the whites, the Hispanics, the northerners, the southerners, the Vols fans and the Gator fans. Jeff, if y'all didn't know he's a Gator fan, he's a Gator fan. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but here, all of a sudden... This, this group of people was so mixed that the only way to identify them was by what they all had in common, what united them all together, and that was their belief in Jesus Christ. Because Christian meant little Christ. And so no longer black or white, slave or free, man or woman. This is where they stopped being defined by their cultural background, and they started being defined by that, their identity in Christ. Because truly, that's all that they had in common. Their their cultures, their ethnicities, their languages, they were all different. But their belief in Jesus Christ united them. And it was probably originally meant as an insult to call them Christians, little Christ. You know, it was probably meant as an insult, but they embraced it. And they just grabbed onto it like a badge of honor. They were called Christians because they acted like Christ. It's like, have you ever met someone who... They didn't tell you they were a Christian, but you knew they were a Christian by the way that they acted. You already knew that they were a Christian. They just oozed Jesus. You know, that's how I'd like to be. Not, not so religious that you, that you make people uncomfortable, but just so full of Jesus that people are drawn to you. Verse 27, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So this, this would include Jerusalem and Antioch. The, it, I don't know if you can tell, all of the green on there is the Roman Empire. And so, so it's being, this, is, this prophecy is being told to the people in Antioch. And it includes them. And it also includes their sister church in Jerusalem. And so 
you know, prophecy is not given to us just to satisfy curiosity. You know, it's not just to give us some, some informational facts. Prophecy is given to us to, to ignite our hearts and our spirit to want to do something, to, to want to fulfill the, the will of God. And so these believers, they couldn't stop the famine, but they could prepare for it and they could help others. So in verse 29, it says, The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now think about this. There's a famine coming. It's going to affect the entire Roman world. And they decide that they're going to help their brothers and sisters living in Judea. Because this prophecy is given to them. It's not given to the people in Judea, in Jerusalem. It's given to them. So the people in Jerusalem, they don't know about it. And so, you know, think about it for a minute. If you were one of these Jews living in Jerusalem, you know, you have just become a Christ follower. You're still a little skeptical, a little uncomfortable with this whole thing about the Gentiles following Christ because before now you didn't really think that they could. And now you're hearing that the Gentiles are coming to the Lord and you're just kind of like, well, yeah, okay, you know. And then this famine comes, and things are getting really bad, and things are getting really scarce. And all of a sudden, these two guys show up, and they've got money, and they've got goods, and they've got things that you need to help your church, to help your people. And you're like, wow, oh my gosh, where, where did all this come from? And they're like, Antioch. You're like, the Gentile church? Yeah, the Gentile church. These people that they didn't even think could be saved are now demonstrating the sacrificial love of God to them. It had to be very humbling. And I, I kind of have to believe that, that God orchestrated this whole thing just to unite his church together even further. You know, it had spread, but it was united. You know, even though there was all this distance between them, they were still one family that supported each other. And that's what I love about this, because the Jews used to hate Gentiles. And they used to hate Saul. And when they started struggling, it was the Gentiles that sent them help. And it was Saul that delivered it. And that's, that's just a testimony to the grace of God and what he can do through the people that he redeems. You know, people are looking for answers to the problems that we see in this country. Answers to, to the racism and to the mass shootings and the protesting and just all the craziness of this world. People are looking for an answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can unite us all together. He's the only one. But how is the world going to know that Jesus is the answer if we don't tell them about him? If we don't introduce them to him? Because let me ask you something. Do you know someone personally who doesn't follow Jesus? And I say follow because there's a difference between believing and following. Because I've believed in Jesus all my life. But there was a time when I was going a whole different direction. Because I knew of him. I knew about him. But I didn't know him. I didn't have that personal relationship with him. So I ask you, do you know someone? Raise your hand if you know someone who doesn't know Jesus. Who doesn't follow Jesus. That's a lot. And my follow-up question 
to that would be, what are you doing to introduce them to him? What are you doing to lead them? Because here's the thing. It's like last week we were watching all the coverage of of the Hurricane Florence, you know, and they were evacuating people. They were telling people to get out of there. And if you knew people there, then you were calling them and you were saying, you know, there's a hurricane coming. you got to get out of there. If you need a place to stay, you can come stay with me. And people that, that lived on the outskirts of it, they're going, they're running to the store and they're getting food and water and batteries and gas for their generators and they're all getting prepared for this big storm, right? What if we turned on the news tonight and it said Jesus is coming back on Thursday night? Because he could. Who would you warn? Would you be prepared? Would you be ready? Because he's coming back. We don't know when, but he's coming back. And what if we prepared for that? What if we prepared our friends spiritually with the urgency and the intensity that we use to prepare them for a storm? Are we as concerned about our friends spiritually? Or have we lost our sense of urgency? I talked to a young girl a couple of weeks ago and she was telling me about a friend of hers who's decided that she doesn't believe in God anymore. And this young girl was devastated to the point of tears, devastated. And I thought, do we, do we feel that way? Do we have that much sensitivity? Does our heart break when we know that someone doesn't believe in God or doesn't know God? Or have we lost that? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. I would take that a step further and say, go into all your world. Go into all your world. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, your soccer team, your exercise class. Go into all your world and spread the gospel. Because God's primary way of reaching people is through people. And Romans 10, 14 says, how will they hear unless someone tells them? That's on us. That's on us. So how do we do that? Well, let me tell you how not to do that in 2018. Not by standing on a street corner with a sign that says, turn or burn. I don't know of anybody that's come to Jesus through that. If there are, I'd be surprised. Not by standing outside of of sinful establishments and protesting. You know, we can stand outside abortion clinics and strip clubs all day long, but there ain't nobody coming to Jesus because of that. It's probably pushing them away. Not by knocking on a stranger's door and asking if you can come in and tell them about Jesus. They think that's weird and scary. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not letting anybody in my house that I don't know. That's just the, the times that we're living in. And I know that there's churches that used to go out and knock on doors, and and maybe they still do. But in my opinion, in my opinion, that's ineffective. And we could use our time much more wisely by reaching our world, the people who are already in our world, the people who know us, the people who love us, that respect us, that we've already earned the right to speak into their lives. Because, listen, the Lord has uniquely placed you in situations to reach people for Christ. 
He has uniquely placed you there for that. And if you will take that first step, he'll take over. He'll empower your words and he will take over. You can do simple things like just asking somebody if you can pray with them. Just ask if you can pray with them. You know, people who are hurting, they're desperate for an answer. They're desperate. And so they may not believe in God, but you ask to pray with them, and they're like, well, you know, I don't believe in your God, but if you want to pray for me, go right ahead, because, you know, if it works, that'd be great. And they're open to it, because they're open to anything that will stop their pain. You know, I've asked people before if I could pray with them, and they've told me no. They've told me no, but that's okay. Because if they decide that they do want somebody to pray with them, they know who to go to, right? And I say, well, that's okay. You know, I'll, I'll still be praying for you on my own. But most of the time, they, they'll let you pray with them. Most of the time, they will. And don't let that freak you out either, okay? Because you don't have to say some poetic, eloquent prayer, Okay? Just say, Lord, please be with Betty. She's hurting right now, and she just needs you, Lord. Amen. That's enough. That's enough because it just it shows Betty that you care about her. And it shows her that you believe that your God cares about her. And in some strange way, it's like Betty feels like that that's an introduction. You know, like maybe God didn't know her before, and now he knows who she is. Like somebody's introduced them. And that's a step. So if I could encourage you to do anything this week, to do one thing this week to impact other people for Christ, it would be to just live out your faith. Live out your faith in front of people. Because the greatest witness to people is a tangible faith. A faith that they can see, not because... It's on your t-shirt, not because it's on your bumper sticker, but because they can see it in you. They can see it in the way that you treat them, the way that you treat others, the way that you respond to the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. A tangible faith, because everything that you say and do speaks of the God that you serve. In closing, as our worship team comes forward, If you want God to use you to reach other people, then I would ask you to say this prayer with me. But I want to warn you that if you do say this prayer with me, God's going to lead somebody into your life. He's going to connect you with somebody that needs to hear about him. Maybe even today. So I'd like you to say this prayer with an earnesty and an openness to the will of God and what he's going to direct in your lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, here we are as your vessels. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to be your hands and feet. Lord, I pray that you would just direct people into our lives, lost people who don't even know they're lost, Lord. Let us help them find their refuge in you. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that others want what we have, that we can guide them to you, that we can show them that you are our joy and you are our salvation. Lord, we love you. In everything we say and everything we do, may we represent you and glorify you well.
Jesus' name.